following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Psalm 127, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, that's page number 518. Preached from this passage in March of last year. It was not in relation to Mother's Day. It was actually... <laughs> It's actually because I had gotten sick and I had pulled an old one out of the bag, but uh, I'm coming back to it uh, this time, not because I'm sick uh, or was sick this week, but I want to uh, look at it from a little bit different perspective uh, in light of today. So if you're in Psalm 127, it's only five verses long. We'll obviously read it all. Please look at verse one. The psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Jesus, I pray that you'll take this short time here that we have in your word this morning and open our eyes to how infected we are with the world around us. Help us to see our own hearts and our own minds, our own way of looking at at things, and then to clearly see you, clearly see your way of viewing this world and of viewing us, and help us, Lord, transform us have your mind. We, we, we don't have that naturally, but we know that as the Spirit works in us, you can change us and mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus, and that's what we need today. And so I pray that you'll bless this time in your name. Amen. From uh, the perspective of one whose job it is to stand up in front of a, a pretty diverse group of people week in and week out and teach God's Word, I can say without any uh, sense of drama or hyperbole that today is one of the hardest days of the year to preach on, uh, Mother's Day. And, and I don't feel that way about Father's Day because generally speaking, I, I mean, we acknowledge Father's Day, we, we talk to it, we, we say Happy Father's Day, those words come out of somebody's mouth at some point on that morning, but by and large, we kind of ignore Father's Day at Cornerstone. It's not that we don't value dads, we value them very much actually. It's more of a fact of the matter that you know, they're guys, and we can treat guys a little different than we treat the girls, and I always call them knuckleheads. Ed called us all pinheads uh, last week. I, I texted him in the middle of that. I'm like, acknowledge you're all pinheads. That's awesome. That's what I said to him. Uh, but, you know, I, I can treat the guys a little different. I don't feel guilty about it, but when it comes to Mother's Day, we tend to, to do a number of special things to honor the day, and we treat it a little bit differently, and that normally includes a special sermon or at least a special time in God's Word, if it's not even really a full sermon, at least a devotional of some sort, depending on, our, on the clock, around the topic of motherhood, and therein lies the problem. Because when I preach on motherhood, I have to take several groups into account. I mean, as soon as I say we're going to talk about motherhood, I lose half the audience, right? All the guys, to some extent, whether they would ever admit it or not, tune me out. Because they're like, well, this is for her. I can sit back and take the week off. Everything's, everything's going to be fine. 
Uh, when in fact, guys, you're, you're being morons if you actually think of it in that way because you need to understand motherhood biblically just like the ladies do. And so even if that was my topic today, I would hope you wouldn't tune me out, but I recognize that can handle so, or that can happen, so that makes it a little bit different. But even with the other half of the crowd, all the ladies in the room, it still becomes a, a tricky matter to handle. Um, on the one hand, you have all the mothers. And uh, when I say you have all the mothers, that's kind of like saying you have all the humans. It's a pretty diverse group of people. You've got a mom on one end of the spectrum who's a a new mom with with an infant, just one infant. And then you've got moms on the other end of the spectrum whose children are 20 and 30 and 40 years old and their grandparents. And I hope you understand that the needs, challenges, and issues that face mothers in all those different stages there they're pretty diverse. And so to simply say, I'm going to talk about motherhood, while, while the high-level principles would all be the same, the applications in all of these different stages of life, they're, they're different depending on the mom that's hearing it. And so that, that can be challenging. But then, on top of that, we've got a whole other group into the room. Oh, oh, excuse me. I almost forgot most, one of the most important points. When you think about the mothers, Add into your, your, your realization here that sin happens in motherhood. And it affects people greatly. And so whether you had a mother who was uh, absent or disengaged or, or abusive, that affects people. Whether you yourself have failed in many different ways, you've got strained relationships, broken hearts, you've got all these things. You see that regardless, even of just the stages, just the effects of sin on all those stages of motherhood is, is drastic and make this very difficult to handle. But then there's a whole nother segment in the room that are not mothers. And, and as we've acknowledged, and it's funny, we didn't talk about this or plan this at all, so I take it that the Lord has arranged this. A whole nother group in the room that are not mothers that which they could be, and this day can be very difficult for them. You know, the issues of singleness and infertility and miscarriage are seldom covered from the pulpit. But can make today a very difficult day for those who have gone through it. So you see why I say that Mother's Day can be one of the hardest days of the year to try to prepare a sermon and to teach, because how do I speak to all those things in in 15, 20, 25 minutes, depending on what I have? I can't. All I can do is year over year over year address one slice and then another slice and then another slice and trust that God in his sovereignty takes all of those slices and puts them together in some kind of a, a cohesive way to help us. And that's all I'm going to do today. I'm just going to cover a single slice of our understanding on this subject. And the slice that I'm covering today is not actually about motherhood at all, per se. As I said at the very beginning, I'm coming back to a passage that I preached on just a year ago now, uh, but want to cover something completely differently since uh, my topic that last time. When I preached on this before, I was addressing our need to recognize our dependence on God in everything. That was the, the, the subject of that particular sermon, because that's what this particular psalm is all about. Psalm 127 is what we call a wisdom psalm. It's not like all the rest of the psalms. Most of the psalms, when you read them, they're about praise or lament, okay? That's the vast, vast majority of the psalms. But there are a few, a select few, that we call wisdom psalms. And the reason we call them wisdom psalms is because their purpose is to teach. Their purpose is to impart wisdom to the singer. They're like a musical version of Proverbs as such. 
And so the Proverbs are written to to impart wisdom to the reader. These wisdom psalms were written to impart wisdom to the singer. And the focus of this particular wisdom psalm is the necessity of dependence on the Lord in everything we do. That's what you're supposed to, to learn from this particular song. The song is arranged in a typical Hebrew way for this kind of psalm. It begins with just some basic teaching, exhortation, instruction on this topic of being dependent on the Lord. He says, Until the Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer builds in vain. Unless the, the Lord is guarding the city, the watchman, the guard that's up in the towers protecting the city, he stays awake in vain. And when you read those words, you're supposed to be understanding, wait a minute, so it doesn't matter how skillful the guy is who's building the house, how diligent and careful the guy is who's guarding the city. If God's not in it, neither of them matter. That, that's the, the message he's getting across, that we are dependent on God in these things. And having laid that foundation then, the writer transitions to an illustration of dependence here in verses 3 through 5, something that would have made sense to the singer, something that would have been very relevant for the time, he uses an illustration of the family. He says that children, verse 3, and all the benefits that come from them, verses 4 and 5, are from the Lord. That they are from his reward, or they are his reward. Excuse me, in other words, and I, and I made this comment last time, I repeat it today. He's trying to help you understand that children are more, more than just the biological product of sex. They're not just a chemistry experiment. That children are from God. They're, they're, from, they're from him. And he's using this illustration, this example, to, to show his larger point about understanding our dependence on God in everything. So whether you're talking about just the routine aspects of daily life versus one and two, building houses, guarding cities, stuff that just was always happening. It's just life. Whether you're talking about the, the daily aspects of life to even the most foundational aspects of life's continuance, children being born, every bit of it, start to finish, is dependent on the Lord. That was the point and focus of my sermon the last time I was in this passage, but as I've said to you already, this time I want to look at something a little bit different. I want to ask a different question. I want to ask us to think about our view of children. How do we view them? How do we value children? What, and, and I don't mean our children necessarily. I mean children. How do we view children. And as you think about that question, it's important for me to clarify two things right off the bat, just to make sure that you really, really understand the question. One, I just said that I'm not just speaking to parents here. I'm talking to everybody, young and old, single, married, whatever. It's, this is a question for all of us because all of us, whether we realize it or not, have a certain view of children in general. Your children, neighbor children, your nieces, nephews, grandchildren, it doesn't matter. You have a view of them. For the, the question's for everybody. Number two, and, and follow, hear me out before you, you pass judgment here. What I'm asking is not simply a biblical question. It is a cultural question. How do we as a culture, as, as members of a society, how do we view children? 
every one of us has a view of children that is influenced by our culture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend that statement in a moment. And that view may be expressed in different ways, but believe me, our culture and every one of us as a part of that culture, we have a certain view of children nonetheless. And that tells me the question is very broad. It is a cultural question that needs a biblical answer. That, that you understand now what I'm doing here? A cultural question needs a biblical answer. And the reason I point these two things out to you here at the beginning is because all of us, I believe, are more affected by our culture's view of children than we realize. That's Jamie and I down, every one of us. I, I believe that with all my heart. It may be a bold statement, but I believe it's a true one. And so in our few minutes together this morning, I want to confront our culture's view of children. And to the extent that we have adopted that view, I want to confront us as well. That's, I'm not really trying to confront any person. I'm trying to confront a view, but to the extent that we've adopted it, we're going to be confronted by it. And I want to offer a biblical alternative that we, as followers of Jesus, should adopt as our own. Understand what we're doing? Okay, let's go. Let's begin by defining our culture's view of children. And I can do this for you in two words only. This is how good I am. I can do it in two words only to define our culture's view of children. You ready for it? Man-centered. Not man as in male, man as in human. Man-centered. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone in here, I don't think. Our culture views pretty much everything. (laughs) Possessions, money, success, relationships, all of it. Our culture views pretty much everything, if not everything, from a man-centered point of view. It's all about us. So we are the, the captain of our, our ship. We're the master of our fate, our, our culture. And we, as parts of that culture, we view all of life as being about us. And so that our view of children is often man-centered as well. It should not surprise us. But I'm here to tell you that we are all, and our culture particularly, is man-centered to the core when it comes to children. And this is nowhere easier to see or illustrate for you, I think, than in the way our culture views abortion. Uh, Abortion is many things, many, many things. But one of the things we often neglect to see in the topic of abortion is the way it shows us our culture's view of children. Because in abortion, our culture sees children as nothing more than an object that belongs to man and is fully at his whim and control. You you see this in the reasons why abortion is often sought. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than finishing high school, college, or grad school. So you, you, you take you take the two things and you put them on the scales. You, on this side, you've got, you've got finishing school, and on this side, you've got the child. And you're like, which one is more valuable? Boom. The school is more valuable, so abortion is the solution. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than one's career and the negative effects that a child will have on that. Again, on the scale, career, child. Boom. Okay? Abortion. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than the fun and freedom that will be curtailed if children are in the picture. So we've got the freedom, the, the joy to be able to go out and do whatever we want without any, anything to hold us back, and now we've got children, which definitely drag down a lot of things, right? And boom, oh, 
abortion. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than the dreams and future plans a parent or parents may have. So you take whatever those dreams may be and you weigh them against the child and boom, abortion. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than the physical appearance or discomfort that accompanies and follows pregnancy. Boom. Abortion is the solution when the child is viewed as less valuable than all of the many fears that are part and parcel of what it means to be a parent, because to be a parent is to be afraid. Boom. And so whether you're talking about school or career or, or fun or dreams or physical appearance or fear, if any of those things are considered to be more valuable than the life of the child, abortion becomes the solution. Do you see what I mean when I say a man-centered view of children? Unless you think that I'm picking on the women who actually walk into the, to the, the rooms to have this procedure done, please understand that behind every woman walking into one of those clinics is a boyfriend or a husband or a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a friend or a culture all telling them that they shouldn't throw their lives away because of an unplanned pregnancy. It's not just a, it's not just a mother lying on the table who is man-centered in her view of children. It's the friends, it's the family, it is our culture as a whole. And we, as Christians, we listen to all of this, because I'm, I'm, really, I'm really preaching to the choir right now. We listen to all of this and we're like, yes, that's right. Abortion is so selfish and man-centered. I'm glad we're not like them. And yet, many Christians are exactly like them. Exactly. Please understand that abortion is not the definition of a man-centered view of children. Abortion is merely an expression of it. Abortion is a symptom of a much deeper sickness that can be expressed in, in other ways. It is an extreme way, but it is not the only way, because you see it in other things. You show me a mom or a dad who puts their career and the pursuit of their career above their children, who values it more than their own children. And I'll show you a man-centered view of children. There's, there's no dif the only difference is that the child's alive. Nothing more. They're no better, no worse. You show me a mom or dad who's so busy with fun and friends that they can't spend time with their kids. I'll show you a man-centered view of children. You show me a couple or a single person who says that they don't want to have kids because they're so messy and so demanding, too much work. I'll show you the man-centered view of children. They may not have, have murdered their child, but they are living out a man-centered view of children nonetheless. And again, some of us in the room begin to sit back and we're like, oh, I'm glad I'm not that person. I'm glad that I spend all the time I can with my kids. I'm glad that I, I live my life around them because I value them so much. Do you realize that can be man-centered too? There are far too many parents who build their lives around their children, not out, of, not out of love for their children, but out of love for themselves when you get right down to it because the parents want all the cute clothes and the photo ops and the, and the memorable moments and the perfect little American family. It never really was about the kids. It was about them and their own personal desires. 
far too many parents who spend all, all kinds of time with their kids, but not to do the important work of biblical parenting, rather simply to fulfill some personal or cultural idea that they carry for whatever reason. I'm, I'm painting really broad brushes here, and, and really quickly, I hope you understand that. But my purpose is to say that this man-centered view of children, it permeates many of us in many different ways, expressing itself in ways that are unique to each and every individual. But at, in the end, when you kind of peel back the layers of the onion and you get right down to the core of it, however it expresses itself, you know what you find? You find idolatry idolatry at the core. And, and a lot of times when people define idolatry, they define it, and this is a great definition, they define it as taking God off of his throne and replacing it with something else. That that's idolatry, and I'm good with that definition, but here's where I tend to disagree with people. A lot of people will, will give you that definition, they'll say, well, what's your idol? Is money your idol? Have you put money on the throne? Is your family your idol? Is your career your idol? Is sports your idol? Is your car your idol? What's your idol? And they look at all these objects or persons or events or desires and they try to figure out what the idol is. I disagree with that. I think man only, only ever has one idol and that's himself. Nothing else. And to the extent that I desire money, guess what I live my life for? Money. But who's the idol? Me. I, I replace God with me. To the extent that I want my career to be successful, I pursue that. But my career is not the idol. I'm my idol. I'm living my life for myself. The idolatry is not these things. The idolatry is us. And you can see this idolatry in the way that many people view children. What's the alternative? What's the biblical view of children? Or, to say it a little differently... If, if a man-centered view of children is the problem, what is a God-centered view of children? How, how can we have that? Well, that's why I came back to Psalm 127. Because in verse 3, the psalmist gives us two concepts here that help us rightly understand children. First, he calls them a heritage from the Lord. First time he refers to them, that's what he calls them. The word heritage here, it means a possession or an inheritance. And I think given the context, the word possession is probably probably your best option for rightly understanding this passage. He's telling us what I, I said early that, earlier, that the children are not merely the biological product of sex. And, and I, I repeat it because I want that driven deep down in your minds. They are far more than that. They are the very possessions of the Lord himself. They, they, in other words, they belong to God, and they are given to us from his hand. All children are. All children belong to God. All children are given from his hand. And I'm, I'm emphasizing all children multiple times to make sure you understand this concept because it includes children with disabilities. It includes children who are born deformed or crippled. It includes children who died during and before birth. It includes children who are conceived through incest or rape. All children are a possession from the Lord. They belong to him and are merely given out to us by his hand. That means there is no accidental child. Not one. Anywhere. Ever. And when you begin to understand that children belong to God, that he owns them, they're his, and they're not ours, they're they're his, when you understand that, it changes the way you view them because they belong to God, not us. We are obligated to both view them and treat them as he would. 
That's why Paul in a passage like Ephesians 6 says to fathers, look, raise your children up how? In the nurture and admonition of who? The Lord, thank you, of the Lord. Why does he tell the fathers to raise their children up in the Lord's nurture and admonition and not their own? Because they don't belong to the fathers. We say, well, the fathers were involved. Yeah, they were, but they're God's. So you want to raise them up? Raise them up in God's nurture. You want to give them instruction? Give them God's instruction because they belong to him. Not, not ours, they're his. And because they are given to us by him, we are obligated to view them from the perspective of a steward. Now that's an old word that isn't used a lot in our culture anymore, which is a shame. Because a steward is a great concept from years gone by, days gone by, when you would have a, an individual who had been entrusted with the care of a, another person's life, basically, and, and they were responsible for it and accountable to that person. And so in our day and age, I was trying to think of some good examples. A steward would be someone who's responsible for the care of your, your retirement savings. We call that person a financial planner. You give them your savings and trust them to do what's right with them to, for your benefit, for your good. They're a steward of your, of your savings. If you have a teenager in your neighborhood who cuts your grass, they're a steward of your lawn. You have entrusted them with the care of something, and they are accountable to you for how well they do it. Well, you have been entrusted with the care of something as well, all of you. Not just parents, all of you. And you've been entrusted with the care of the children that God has placed in your lives. Parents, parents, this is true for you. God has given these children to you to live in your home, to see what life is like at your feet, to be with you 24-7 almost, for you to feed them and raise them and take care of them. You have been given a great, great responsibility by God. You have been entrusted as a steward of these children. Grandparents, you are entrusted as well. Your job of parenting isn't done because all your children move away. You, you have children in your life still, these grandchildren, who now are part and parcel of your responsibility for whom you too will give an account. Aunts and uncles, all your nieces and nephews that God has placed in your life, in our lives, I'm an uncle as well. Friends, neighbors, and for us as a church, my goodness. We regularly stand up here and talk about how many children God has entrusted to us here at Cornerstone, how those rooms back there are exploding with, with kids. And we can maybe sometimes think, well, that's kind of a, you know, a negative. I wish we had more, more room. No, I'm thankful for every single child out there. But at the same time that I'm thankful, there's a little part of me that's fearful too. Because we as a church body, every single person in this room, will give an account for those kids. We have been entrusted with them. This is what a, a God-centered view of children does to you. It opens your eyes to the fact that, that children belong to him and are given to us from his hand. But, but there's another word used here to describe children that we definitely don't want to skip. In case you think that that responsibility and weight is a negative one somehow, well, then you need to have this view of God too. The psalmist also tells us here that the fruit of the womb is God's reward. His reward. Now, the word reward here, the Hebrew word, it can be used in a couple of different ways. Normally, in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to wages. Okay, So if you work and you go get your paycheck, this is your reward. Okay, It's something you earn. But it can be used to refer to a gift as well. And I think that's the right understanding here, that children are a gift from God, literally. Not, not figuratively, not poetically, 
literally a gift from God. And because they are a gift, then we should view them as something to be enjoyed. They should be a joy to us, not a hindrance or an annoyance. They should be a blessing. Just like so many other things that God has given. God has given us childhood. The whole concept of childhood has a gift. Hey, here's a, here's a little esoteric thought for you to go home and toy with this Mother's Day afternoon. Why did God create childhood? Ever thought of that? He didn't have to do it that way. He could have made it so that we as humans reproduced as fully grown adults. Yeah, not that way. That would be painful. He, he could have, could he not? He, he could have made it so there was no infant stage, no toddlers, no preschoolers, no elementary age, no tweens, no teens. I was waiting for an amen. You know, we just, we just take all of that stuff for granted, because, and rightly so, because it's all we've known. That this is how God works, and this is how life works. But remember, God didn't have to do it that way. He is nothing if, if not creative, and he could have designed a completely different system if he had wanted to, but he didn't. He created childhood. He created children. And while there are many reasons why he did that, I'm sure, one of them is so that we can enjoy them. They are supposed to be a gift to us. And if you don't view them in that light, you're missing, you're missing out on God's goodness. You're missing out on an expression of God's great love for us. Jesus himself came as a child. Jesus himself valued children, and so should we. And to not value them, to dislike them, as I hear people say from time to time, is to dislike and devalue one of God's most precious gifts to man. And so I'm taking today, and just it's a short thing, but taking today and this one slice of a sermon to call us to a biblical, God-centered view of children. I'm calling us to examine our hearts as to how much we have been infected by our culture's view of children, this, this view that is man-centered, that this culture embraces and promotes with all its, its heart. I'm calling us to see ourselves as the stewards that we really are. That the children in your life, whether they're your biological children, whether they're adopted children, whether they're your neighbors, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, you're responsible for them. You've been entrusted with a great gift, and it is not intended to be a burden. It is intended to be a joy. I'm I'm calling us to see children as the joy that God intended for uh, uh, them to be. And this is a call to us individually, every single person. But it is also a call for us corporately as a church because the fact of the matter is that Hillary Clinton was right, mostly, when she said uh, that it takes a village to raise a child. I would just adjust it with one word. It doesn't take a village. It takes a family. It takes a family to raise a child. And as believers in Jesus, we, we're a family. We're a family. Not a family based on shared blood, but a family based on the shed blood of Jesus, Right? That he together has made us one with himself and each other. And in this particular family here, he's given us a lot of kids. A lot of kids. But that's a joy. It's a joy and it's a responsibility that we view them and treat them the way that God does. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Jesus, we, we recognize in our culture that like everything else, not just with children, everything, they... They view, our culture views children from a very man-centered perspective, treating them as something that is, that is despised. I can't, I can't.
cannot remember how many times either we or I've heard of others who have been approached by people in stores and just said, oh, you kids, oh, life's over. And how wrong, Lord. How wrong for people to think that way, to feel that way, to, to place themselves up so high, to, to be on their thrones so, so firmly that they devalue something that you value so much. As people who name the name of Jesus, Lord, we do not want to live our life like that. We don't want to have a, a man-centered view of the children in our lives. We want to have a God-centered view. We want to see them as belonging to you, first and foremost. See ourselves as stewards to whom you have entrusted their care. Lord, help us to be responsible stewards, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not in our own instruction, not especially not in our culture's instruction, but in the instruction you have given in the word. Help us as a family to see all of the children in, in our midst in that way, whether they're our biological children or not, they are still under our care and we are thankful, thankful that you have trusted us with this. Lord, also help us to see them as a joy. They make mistakes and yes, they can be annoying, but so can we. They're, they're sinners just like us. Help us not to, to take those moments and, and to build a, a false uh, caricature of what children are like, but to remember that they are sinners in need of the gospel. Just like we, as your people, are still constantly in need of being changed by the gospel. Help us to enjoy them, to love them, to embrace them, to, to see them with the value with which you yourself see them. You created this whole concept, and so you find joy in it yourself. We, we want to see it like you. Lord, we are a family that you have put together here at Cornerstone. And with all of our many failures and faults, we give ourselves to you this day on this Mother's Day to remind us and to help us to live our lives like you would in relation to children so that our children will grow up, this next generation that will carry the faith forward and, and be the ministers of Jesus Christ to their generation. Help us to, to raise them and treat them now so that they can be faithful servants of you in the future. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name.